Welcome to the rooftop. The uh, title of this episode as we wrap up the end of August 2023 is some tough predictions. <laughs> that's uh, that's what I've landed on for this episode. And it's another solo podcast. I'm up in D.C. right now on the eve of a remembrance event for the Afghanistan withdrawal. I've, I've, I'm going to be going up with uh, my buddy Sean Ryan, who's going to be giving um, – one of the keynote speeches to wrap the evening up. He just attended our play in Nashville, last out Elegy of a Green Beret, that we performed on the anniversary of the Abbey Gate bombing. So it's been, man, it's been a month, um, and it's the two-year anniversary of the botched withdrawal that the Biden administration um, conducted. And I tell you, man, I, I, I got to be honest, like th this month has, it's been two years, but it has just been gutting um, to navigate this month. I did not expect it to hit me this hard. Um, you know, the, the loss of our 13 service members at Abbey Gate and, and, and what their families have gone through. Um, interactions with, with my buddy Tyler Vargas, who um, was gravely wounded at Abbey Gate and, and then has just been, it seems like they've tried to muzzle him at every turn. And this is a guy who lost his arm, lost his leg, and, you know, was going down from the, the sniper tower into the, into the crowd to help his Marine buddies when, when he you know, suffered those wounds from the blast. And yet the, to me, the mainstream media, the 24 seven news cycle has just ignored um, everything he's had to say. Certainly, um, the administration has. And again, look, before you start going down that road, I know the divisionists uh, who listen to this will immediately say, oh, this is a this is an anti-Biden podcast. You know, it's not really if it, uh, I'm, I'm super hard on the Trump administration for the wrongheaded Doha agreement. Uh, frankly, I've been I've been underwhelmed by so many by every administration that has prosecuted this war. So and, I, you know. There's plenty to go around in terms of uh, accountability, but the Biden administration owns this withdrawal, and they always will. It'll be their legacy. The The only thing that'll come around worse than this withdrawal is the secondary and tertiary effects of it that'll affect the homeland. And I'll talk about that more in a minute because, again, this episode is about making some tough predictions. But just to kind of set the context for you know, what is really my last podcast for the month of August 2023 – um, also seeing the impact on our Afghan allies, those that, that made it out and are dealing with severe trauma here in the United States and in Europe, uh, facing all kinds of resettlement challenges, but also uh, so many of my friends who are interpreters, Afghan commandos, special forces, Casca Tejas, NMRG, that are being hunted. I get emails and, and desperate texts every day on LinkedIn and Signal from various special operators and other volunteers who are still doing everything they can to help um, female prosecutors, uh, judges, uh, commandos, police officers who are just on the run. They're living like animals being hunted. Many of them have been exterminated, made to disappear, shallow holes in the desert, shot in front of their families, tortured. Uh, and these were our allies for 20 years. These were the people that we stood with for 20 years and who we were, you know, basically held to account by senior military officers that you never leave your partner on the battlefield. You never, um, you know, Shona, Shona Bashona, shoulder to shoulder and all that other horse shit um, that was put out there by these politicians and these generals 
who are actually politicians. Um, and I, I have to tell you that the the moral injury mostly that has been inflicted on our generation of warriors who gave up their 20s, their 30s, their 40s for something that we truly believed in and 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 without reservation, without hesitation, many of them multiple tours only to witness and bear witness to a wholesale systemic abandonment that has frankly been going on in this country for decades starting with the Montagnards and um well hell even you know God, probably before then, but but certainly with the Montagnards and with the Syrian Kurds, um, with twice in Afghanistan, the Iraqi police and military. I mean, just on and on. And um, I will tell you, for me personally, thank God for Last Out, Elegy of a Green Beret. I am so grateful for that play. I am so grateful for the opportunity to harness and leverage storytelling as a way just to, for starters, I mean, selfishly to heal myself. Um, it having that play this month to fall back on and and basically inform my character you know a, a long-term green beret Danny Patton with what I'm feeling which is what is so much emotion betrayal um sadness grief and just put that into you know the arts has just been a godsend and I do believe that it's reaching more people than ever. I think that there's a lot of influencers now that are seeing it. I think it is healing some hearts and some and some souls, and it's keeping me in the game for sure. And also informing a lot of civilians on the cost of modern war. Now, you know, I can tell you this. What I will tell you is we're going to keep this going. My wife, Monty, and I have had a long talk about it, and I'll be the first to announce it here. I was going to stop playing Danny Patton uh, at the end of 2023, but... If we're able to keep this thing funded and going, I'm going to continue to play that role for you know at least the foreseeable future because I do believe it is having a profound impact. And it's been six years in the making to get this thing where it is, and and I think it can it can make a difference. And so that's what we're going to try to continue to do. Um, you know, I will tell you, in since the abandonment in Afghanistan, uh, I found myself in just the craziest places. And I've seen a lot, you know, contextually over the last two years, um, leading all the way, you know, from the abandonment in 2021 in August, all the way up until now. I was doing a lot of work in the veteran space at that point in August of 2021. I was doing a lot in the leadership space across multiple industries. But I have to say, over the last two years, I've found myself in just these odd, weird interesting places like testifying to the House Foreign Affairs Committee on the Afghanistan withdrawal, uh, to working with Moral Compass, this federation of more than 20 volunteer groups, the Pineapple Express, the play Last Out, partnering with Gary Sinise on taking it on tour. Um, just a range of things where I, I believe I've got a pretty good uh, context, a pretty good perspective on some things. That are happening in this country, and and as we wrap up this two-year anniversary of the abandonment of our Afghan allies, I'm going to make some predictions today, and uh, it's 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 kind of a holistic perspective that I'm going to offer here. The bulk of it, I think, probably affects national security in our in our country. And I mean, I'll be honest with you, I'm ready to kind of move away from that in terms of my own stuff because I I really love. Rooftop leadership. I love human connection. I love storytelling. I love social capital, relationship building, uh, owning rooms through relatability and relevance, old school interpersonal skills. I love that stuff, man. That's my passion. 
And I'm really keen to get back to that. But I, I think I would be remiss if I didn't wrap up the month of August at the two-year anniversary with some predictions, and then and then bring it kind of bring it full circle to where we're going to go in 2024 with um, more of a rooftop human connection style approach. You know, uh, you hear me talk a lot about the upswing and operationalizing the upswing at civil society levels through old school and a personal skills and making this podcast get back to that. But um, I, again, I think I would be remiss if I didn't kind of put a bow on some predictions that I think I'd like you to like you to ponder on and maybe share with your, your friends and, and colleagues that would care to hear it. So in no certain order, here they are. And I'm, I'm going to spend a little bit of time on each one. Uh, I, if we need to go deeper in the future, perhaps we can. But So here they go. I, so I believe we're going to suffer a catastrophic terror attack here at home probably within the next three years. And um, I feel pretty strongly about that, you know, and, and I know that's a – it sucks. Uh, it, but I, I believe we are more at risk for a catastrophic terror attack here at home of the – let me be clear – of the Islamist terror group variety. Notice I did not say Islamic, Islamist, uh, the the fundamental terror groups who hijack that religion and, and bend it towards um, apocalyptic uh, violence such that ISIS and al-Qaeda do. And I believe it is absolutely delusional to think that this is not going to happen. I believe we are more at risk than we were pre-9-11. You know, I've talked at length to commandos and other special operators who are still in Afghanistan. I've talked with Legend, who is the Afghan-American former Army NCO who has gone back into Afghanistan multiple times and and provides amazing intelligence reports. And then, of course, I've talked to friends in the National Resistance Front, to include Massoud himself, who all say there are more than 20 violent extremist groups operating in Afghanistan quite a few with global reach, and they are growing rapidly. They are reconstituting rapidly. We've heard the CENTCOM commander say that uh, ISIS and al-Qaeda within six months will have a strike capability of the U.S. You know, if you go back and you look, you guys, when the Soviets left Afghanistan and they retreated back into the north, you know, out of the country, um, it was a clarion call. Uh, across the Islamic world for violent extremist groups to flock to Afghanistan, not only in, in, in celebration, but in preparation to take the you know global jihad um, to the world and to the West. And that's exactly what happened. And it began this clarion call that went out on the heels of the Soviet retreat ushered in, you know, this these horrific attacks that we that we experienced and I and I think the timeline will be accelerated because the way that we pulled out not only we left tons of weaponry, tons of ammunition, tons of capability, we left uh, special operators from our Afghan allies to be co-opted. The we know that that al-Qaeda is operating with impunity on former Afghan National Army bases in Helmand, Kandahar and other places. Um it's it's scary stuff, man. And um, it is it is um, it is a no brainer to me that the narrative of of groups like Al Qaeda and ISIS in particular has been emboldened and they've proven 
in both will and capacity a propensity to attack the United States and the West, why would they stop now? They're not afraid of retaliation. They're not afraid of what we will do. In fact, they welcome it because um, they, they've seen how we will buckle over the long haul. So I think that we are definitely going to see that, and and I believe that this will be, you know, I, I'm I'm just going to start working on my next 9/11 testimony now, for the hearing because uh, I think this this falls squarely on the legacy of the Biden administration. And again, this is uh, if if you know me, you know my approach here is very apolitical. I would be saying the same thing if Trump or Bush had um, had had withdrawn in this way, but uh, it won't be. The way that we left Afghanistan that will be the legacy of the Biden administration, it will be the cataclysmic attack that happens at home uh, as a result of it. And I've said this over and over again, and I'm making that prediction right here. Uh, kind of as a follow-on to that is is the, the national security strategy that we're going to see kind of permeate, and, and a lot of civilians won't pay attention to it, but – I have it on high authority that, that the national security strategy really omits, does not include any non-state actors. So you think about the cartels, the international syndicates, the, the, the shitheads that are moving fentanyl into this country and, and killing a battalion of, of, of young men basically every day. Um, you know, it's, it's not in the national security strategy, nor are terror groups, you know, that are the ones that have really shown, again, the propensity to strike at home. That omission of these non-state actors, I think, is, is going to haunt us because it's exactly where the attack will come from. The more insidious attack is already underway in the realm of fentanyl and, you know, cartels, but the, the the attack from violent extremist organizations, primarily from the safe haven of Afghanistan, is is going to be even more stark and even more damning because our national security strategy will not have even allowed for it. Basically, our hubris has has caused us to create a strategy that just fits our traditional desires. In other words, we don't want to look at non-state actors. You know, our, our, our senior politicians and our senior generals and admirals have said, you know what, we're tired of dealing with asymmetric threats. We're tired of counterinsurgency. We're going to focus on the big Russian bear, and we're going to focus on, um, you know, the Chinese threat because that's what we want to put our effort in. And frankly, I believe the, the, the military-industrial complex would, just loves that fact, although they're going to they're going to make their trillions either way. But, you know, going to the big conventional route is is great for them as well. But what I ultimately think that that wrongheaded overreach um, that is happening within our national security strategy to omit non-state actors as the most viable threat is going to result in basically a strategic shock and like a whip crack action of over overreactive return back into Afghanistan in response to um, a cataclysmic attack here at, at home that will result in the same mistakes that we made in the global war on terror because we, it'll, it's our playbook. We will not have learned. We have done no systemic lessons learned or true after action reviews coming out of Afghanistan. And, you know, I – Again, I get really tired of a lot of these apologists 
basically giving a pass to our senior DOD officials and our generals and our admirals. I'm sorry, but it, it, this whole notion that, you know, they serve at the pleasure of the president and the administration, so they have no say in things is just horseshit. You know, serving at the pleasure of the president means you could resign and you could hang up the cleats, especially with your 30, 35 years of service, you know, to to make a point that we're not even learning our systemic lessons and we are participating in wholesale systemic abandonment of our partners. We are creating a lack of social capital in the world where young Green Berets and other advisors are going to have to go into very difficult situations to try to build rapport and establish social capital when very few people in the world trust us because of the way we've treated our allies. And there's just been no lessons learned, no after-action reviews. And the ones that have been written are a joke. You know, they're a joke. The State Department's after-action review where it actually blamed the volunteer groups and, and continued to double down on this greatest uh, you know, uh, withdrawal or, or neo non-combatant evacuation in American history. I mean, it's just crap, right? We know that, that of the 100,000 Afghans that got out of there, a very small percentage of them were actually vetted and were actually those who assumed the greatest risk. And of those who were, it was largely the volunteer groups who vetted them, who knew where they were, they knew who they were, and they presented them responsibly to the connections that they had made with the folks who were standing watch on the wire, Marines and paratroopers. And I know this because I have, in an exhaustive way, far more than any government entity has, interviewed the men and women who were on that wire and who have said to the man and to the woman that the, the, the volunteer groups that, that responsibly presented these individuals made it possible for them to pull in the ones – the right ones. Um, you know, and so it, it, it's shocking to me that there's been no responsible after-action review, no systemic analysis of what went right, what went wrong, and what we could do differently. So as a result of that, when we are struck in a cataclysmic fashion on the heels of those smoldering ruins and the Budweiser commercials that are you know, playing in the country music songs, evoking patriotism and yellow ribbons around trees as we saddle back up with another batch of 18-year-old you know, uh, crew-cutted uh, paratroopers and others on C-17s going back into the sanctuary of Afghanistan, what they're going to find is not probably you know, a robust Northern Alliance resistance like we found with the horse soldiers in 2001 and two. What they're going to find are pissed off commandos and national mine reduction groups and tattered rags with you know, carbines and optics that are left over and uh, an axe to grind with our forces because of how they were abandoned. And what a tragedy, man! What a tragedy to put our warfighters in that kind of in that kind of position. But I believe that's where it's going to go. I think that we will see just a complete redo of uh, OEF Operation Enduring Freedom and um, a complete collective amnesia. And all of these folks who are responsible for this, they will skulk into the shadows and they'll disappear just long enough to write it out and then reassert themselves back into a divisionist kind of role. And I know that's just so pessimistic, and I really don't even view it as pessimism. I just, I, I'm looking at the context of it, and there's no way this doesn't repeat itself, right? The um, On the heels of that, I, my, my fourth prediction, so what I've said so far is that uh, we're going to suffer a catastrophic attack here at home. I think the new national security strategy um, you know, is going to omit non-state actors, so it will contribute to that. And then our, our own hubris, our own arrogance, um, 
creating a strategy with non, you know, not including non-state actors will create a whip crack effect where we just revert back to the same neural story map that we used post 9-11 that put us into that 20-year war and and fell short, far short of what could have been accomplished and should have been accomplished. And so we're doomed to repeat it. Um, my next prediction is that the volunteer army, the volunteer military at that point will be so weak that I don't know if it can sustain it. You know, another 20-year war, another five-year war, recruiting is already abysmal, retention is abysmal, and you've got the army chief of staff or the, or the uh, secretary of the army um, referring to the generations of war fighters who have now told their sons and daughters and nephews and nieces, I wouldn't join if I were you, referring to them as the warrior caste and that she wants to avoid that warrior caste and that the new recruiting system will not tap into that. I mean, if that's how we are addressing the legacy of volunteer warfighters and, and how we think about them at an institutional political level, I don't know how the volunteer army can or military can sustain that. If that's the view that we have of it, then that is a reciprocal thing. The military veterans will reciprocate that. The, the families will reciprocate that. And I don't see any outcome that is favorable towards a volunteer military when you refer to your legacy warriors, your multi-generational warriors as warrior caste to be avoided. Just disgusting. Uh, it further It's further evidence of, I think, just this growing gap between the leaders and the led. I talk to so many iconic NCOs who, um, who, who really are just disillusioned with the senior officers, senior enlisted advisors, senior politicians, senior diplomats that we put our faith and trust in for 20 years. And you can call us victims if you want. You can, you know, you can make fun of us. You can do, you can roll your eyes at us. But the reality is it is a vast number of the men and women who served you faithfully. And not only have you abandoned them or betrayed them, but you've been noticeably silent in the public space as moral injury grows, as 88,000 calls go into the VA hotline in March, the most on record, and your silence is deafening. Your level of, of tone-deaf behavior, r remarks that I have personally heard from four-star generals who said, you know, quit talking about betrayal. It makes you sound like a victim. Individuals who we once revered, uh, others who were on the ground at HKI saying, I thought they would be over this by now. Like, it's, 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 it's incorrigible. And your NCOs, your former NCOs and your, your warrant officers and your, and your junior officers who really carried so much of the load and, and still carry the load, honestly, at a moral level and are, are serving as the moral compass for this country, they are not looking at you the same. You know, I, I frankly, I don't care anything to hear about what a lot of these general officers and admirals and politicians and diplomats that, that were touted around on 24-7 news cycles and congressional testimonies. I don't care what they have to say anymore. You know, they, they, they dropped the ball not only in Afghanistan. And, hey, I dropped the ball, too. I made tons of mistakes. But the, I, think, I think the difference is at least I've owned it. And I've made, you know, public acknowledgement and think about in every forum I've been in that I made mistakes and that I, I'm trying to learn from them. And I, I think that a lot of senior NCOs and, and mid-grade and junior officers have said the same thing. But where are the politicians and the generals and the admirals saying that? Where is just the, you know, where is one former general just coming forward and saying, hey, on behalf of, you know, senior leadership, even though I'm out now, I, I just, 
I just want you guys to know that it mattered, and I want you to know that the moral injury you're going through right now, we're going to figure out a way through this. We're going to work together. I just haven't seen it. If I've, if I've missed it, let me know, and I'll I'll own it. You know, but I would welcome any of our former senior officers and senior enlisted advisors to come forward and and let's try to let's try to start bridging this gap because our guys are and girls are really hurting right now. And and the way to move from moral injury to moral recovery. Is to is to is to it's going to take senior leadership to do that, right? And 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 I think acknowledgement of the mistakes that were made and also assurances that this is not going to happen again. Right now, there is no assurance of that at all. And I always harp on this, and but I'm not going to stop harping on it until I see some kind of change. But to me, for the Special Forces Regiment to have a podcast called the Indigenous Approach based on how we abandoned our allies, whether we were culpable or not, whether you know, you want to shift that to the politicians, whatever, the people who we partnered with for twenty years don't make that they don't make that distinction. They look at the Green Berets and they say, Oh my God, you left us right and and i know so many green berets have not left them and they stay engaged even behind the scenes on active duty but what i'm saying is as a regiment our collective identity and reputation has been damaged it has and we're supposed to be the proponent in the us military for social capital for rapport building and we have this podcast called The Indigenous Approach where we – why aren't we talking about what happened in Afghanistan? Why aren't we talking about the lessons learned? Why aren't we talking about how we can um, establish atonement for that and rebuild bridges? I'll tell you why. Because you would lose your career if you did it, right? But then just take the shit down because it it is in, it is impossible to me to think that somehow we can assert that we that we have the indigenous approach – when we created and committed the most wholesale fucking abandonment of allies in modern history, right? It's a joke. And where is, even if, again, even if it's in the retired ranks, like where is the discussion on that? And just recognizing that we've got work to do. Like if we're going to reestablish a standing in the world for our ability to engage and work by, with, and through, you can't just turn the page and pretend like this shit didn't happen. It doesn't work that way, right? It just doesn't. And 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 to think that it does is diluted, and it actually puts our our folks at risk. And I think that's why you're seeing a new breed of leaders coming out. And these are leaders that were NCOs and junior officers. Sean Ryan, you know, Herb Thompson, Jason Halk, Tyler Vargas, Joe Louds of uh, Operation Allies Refuge. I mean, these are the, the ones, Ben Owen, these are the people that are, are leading and are making an impact and that we're listening to. And it's because they're, they're just speaking the truth. And they don't, they don't care where the political winds blow or what happens to their quote-unquote career. They care more about the men and women that they're connected to. You know, and the other thing I will tell you is these volunteer networks – um, this is my next prediction. These volunteer networks, the digital Dunkirks, the Flanders Fields, the We Fight Monsters, the Moral Compass, the Sacred Promise, uh, the Pineapple Express, you know, these volunteer networks are going to continue to step into the breach where institutional leadership is weak. Um, just recently, I was asked to um, help put together kind of a, 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 a pineapple-esque or Flandersfield-esque volunteer group around the horrible fire relief effort that happened in Maui. 
And, you know, it was cool because it was Ben Owen from Flanders Field. It was Big Earl from Veteran Trash Talk and, and, and some other amazing leaders who connected with folks on the ground in, um, you know, in, in, in Maui, like Maddie and Zane and Pastor Sean that are on the ground doing this Herculean relief effort with just what they have at their disposal. And I watched it happen again, man. I saw this amazing network, this pre-existing core network that then spread into this this amazing platform that combined strategic resources in the United States and abroad, airlift resources, but also people on the ground who were articulating the need with specificity and even, you know, guys from international news platforms that are in, you know, working both anonymously and also, you know, offering their platform up to get the voice out there fundraising. And it, you guys, it stood up in like 48 hours, man. And there are actually right now planes being loaded to fly stuff over to Maui. And um, I believe these kinds of networks are going to continue to emerge in situations where institutional leadership is weak, which is just about every possible domain. Our institutional leaders, because they have become divisionists, and I'm talking about the politicians, the diplomats, the senior military officers, they are divisional. They are focused on fomenting instability uh, to advance a narrow agenda by, by leveraging in and out groups to go at each other rather than taking a bridging approach, a bridging trust approach, a broader social capital approach as we have always relied on our institutional leaders to do, then they are falling short. And it's falling short in every imaginable category. You know, from from environmental protection to emergency relief to disaster relief to national security. Um, and, you know, there's there's also shadow sides to these networks, too, because, like, I believe we've got to be very careful about what happens in places like Ukraine, where these networks are actually starting to supplement instruments of power. I mean, how does that end? You know, and all I can say is that this gap between the leaders and the lead is very concerning, and these informal networks continue to fill the space. What I hope and believe will happen is that it will just continue to put pressure on uh, substandard institutional leaders, and they'll get voted out. And there will be continued uh, pressure for an upswing, as Robert Putnam talks about, where civil society will elect new leaders and new community leaders will step forward. And we will develop a new standard of social capital and leadership in this country. And we just won't tolerate the divisionists anymore. Um, going back to national security, I, I would not be surprised at all if we abandon Iraq the same way we abandon Afghanistan in the next year or so. Um, I've got some insider scoop on that, but I would not be surprised at all if President Biden uh, attempts on his platform, his election platform, to say that um, he ended both wars in the Middle East, these endless wars. He ended both of them. And it would not surprise me if he bails on Iraq exactly the way he bailed on Afghanistan. He has no remorse for it. He's demonstrated a propensity to do that even in Vietnam, offered no help to the Vietnamese refugees or the Montagnards, and he has no remorse here. It would not surprise me at all if uh, this administration walked away from Afghanistan in just as much an irresponsible fashion, certainly looking at the deal they've made with Iran and the disdain for um, – 
disengagement that we have in the Middle East, I would not be surprised at all. Um, so keep an eye on that. Keep an eye on uh, an Iraqi abandonment that looks very hauntingly similar to the Afghanistan abandonment. Uh, I believe that the National Resistance Front in Afghanistan is going to at some point become the most valued asset for action in the world because of our inability to see what is happening right in front of our eyes. Um, the, the National Resistance Front in Afghanistan, led by Ahmed Massoud, Ahmed Shah Massoud's son, is really the only antibody right now to not just the Taliban, but the other 20-some violent extremist groups that are trying to rapidly reemerge in that new sanctuary and project power into the West and attack us here at home. The only thing between them and us is the National Resistance Front. They are receiving no help. No recognition, no support from the federal government at all. They are on their own. And anybody who knows anything about resistance and unconventional warfare knows that external support is absolutely necessary. We are providing none of it to an ally that was with us for 20 years. And let's not forget that many of these resistance fighters are former commandos, former NMRG, former special forces, Afghans, um, and we're not helping them at all. We're just sitting it out. But what's ironic about this is that when the catastrophic attack happens at home, you can bet that our short-term memory lapse will will say, oh, my God, we need to work with somebody to get into the country. Well, guess who we're going to go to? We're going to go to um, the National Resistance Front, the same way we went to the Northern Alliance. Now, I also make a prediction that whoever strikes us at home, the first thing they're going to try to do is is – kill the leader of the National Resistance Front if he's still alive, uh, because they know that's where we're going to go. That's what bin Laden did. Bin Laden killed Massoud's father two days before the 9-11 attacks. Most Americans to this day still don't know that. Most politicians don't even clock that. But they actually had the strategic foresight, bin Laden did, to kill the leader of the resistance 48 hours prior to striking us at home. What we know is that this version of al-Qaeda, this version of ISIS has uh, evolved, and they're so much more sophisticated than al-Qaeda was in 2001, prior to 2001. So God only knows what they're going to bring here, and um, the, one of the first indicators will be is an assassination attempt on whoever is leading the resistance, if they're still around, because the odds of them uh, staying in the game are very slim. But if they are they will become the most sought-after group uh, from the United States and NATO because they will pre present the only viable resistance and entry point of entry for the United States when we go back in there uh, in a colorblind kind of way. A um, couple other things, predictions here. Bringing it home, I believe there is a growing upswing of civic responsibility and responsible leadership in this country. I know a lot of the stuff I've talked about is doom and gloom, but I have to be honest about where I think we've put ourselves in terms of national security, recruiting, retention, um, uh, safety here at home. Our standing in the world, I mean, that's that's just my job is to is to at least be honest about those. But I do believe, I mean, you know, I also look very closely at human connection here in the United States. I, I travel around the country giving talks and leadership sessions to multiple industries and businesses, nonprofits, for-profits, public, private sector. And, you know, if you haven't read Robert Putnam's The, the Upswing, I think you should. 
I do believe there's a growing upswing of civic responsibility and responsible leadership. I believe we're due the same way we were due in the early 1900s when Alcoholics Anonymous and the Rotary Club and the Junior League and the NAACP formed. I think you're starting to see that now. I think these veteran volunteer groups were the first shot across the bow, but I think what you're seeing with the, the networks in Maui, um, Ukraine, there, there's a lot of civic responsibility here at home. Um, there's a lot of calls for political reform, um, a lot of calls for term limits. And what we just need to know is that the divisionist leaders will do everything they can to shut that down. They will do everything that they can um, to maximize social media and, you know, this quote unquote canceling people, which is such bullshit. I mean, um, fuck, if I didn't get canceled in, a, in Afghanistan after three tours, no one's going to cancel me here. You know, that's just a that's just a point of view. You know, um, and and I think that the more leaders who just realize that and just are just themselves, you know, and don't become hopelessly entangled with social media and all this other stuff and don't take themselves too seriously, these voices will continue to emerge and, and the divisionist voices will hopefully, you know, um, diminish. I do believe, speaking of entanglement, though, this is kind of, you know, almost also domestically, but but on the darker side, I think our I do believe our entanglement with social media and our entanglement with artificial intelligence is very, very dangerous. It's very, very scary. We haven't become fully entangled with AI yet, but that is coming. And when it does happen, and I think that'll be within the next couple of years, relationships and social capital are going to take on a level of importance that is never before seen because everything else in the digital world is going to be a friggin' falsehood. You know, you're not going to know if, if you have a digital signature. You're not going to know if that's your child's voice uh, on the on the cell phone that you're talking to. You're not going to know if that song you're watching was actually even created by a human. And that's just scratching the surface. I mean, the reality is the digital domain will be hopelessly entangled with artificial intelligence and it will be impossible to discern in that represented reality what's real and what's not. And what will remain real and remain viable is is our relationships, physical relationships, interpersonal relationships, and relationships with the natural world. Those things will take on a level of, of importance that's unimaginable. And that's why I tell people storytellers are going to own the room. Storytellers... Uh, people who are trained and skilled in the art and science of human connection are going to be the ones we turn to. You know, the, 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 if you haven't read Ian McGilchrist's book, The Master and His Emissary, it's a big read, but I suggest you do. Because what, what McGilchrist asserts is that the divided brain, which is, you know, a reality of all humans, we have a divided brain, it's a reality of all mammals and animals, is that the brain is divided and, and you, the left hemisphere is focused on obtaining things and grabbing and having, and it has always historically been the emissary of the right hemisphere, which has a relationship with the natural world, which is the the storytelling, uh, more holistic version of our of our brain, and they both work in tandem. They both work in tandem. They work at the same time. This this left hemisphere of having and grabbing and obtaining, while the right hemisphere has a more holistic relational relationship with other humans and is more social in nature, and they work together. But but the left has always been subservient to the right, and it's allowed us, in McGilchrist's words, to get without getting got. 
In other words, if a bird is pecking on bird seed in a park, you know, the left hemisphere is, is focused on being able to obtain those little bits of seed, but the right hemisphere is focused on the cat sitting on the fence and the humans that are approaching down the sidewalk. And it works simultaneously, but, you know, it doesn't do any good to grab and obtain that bird seed if you don't pay attention to the cat, right? It leads to extinction. And, and McGilchrist's point here is that, Having the divided brain, but with the right hemisphere of relations and storytelling and connection being dominant allows us to get without getting got. And this has been flipped in the modern world. It has been flipped where there, because of the entanglement with AI and with social media and the 24-7 news cycle, the left hemisphere of the brain has actually taken over and has become obsessed with this represented reality on the blue screens, with AI, with you know, all, all of the things that go with uh, you know, a represented world. It's not even with the natural world. And this, this ability to have and obtain and control is running out of control is running out of control, and it's putting us in a position where we are literally living in fear-based behavior all the time. We're obsessed with control. We're obsessed with having. It's a mechanistic, mass transactional world. you know. And I know that's a lot, and I know I'm laying it on you, but the reality is it's happening at this insidious rate where if you think about, just look around your world, everything is so fear-based. Everything is so anger-based, right? And it's when those things happen, you slip into a trance-like state. Ivan Tyrrell says in his book, The Human Givens, that anger and fear make us temporarily stupid. And if this is this is the this is the reality that we're operating in, as the Atlantic says in its article, why the, the last ten years have been uniquely stupid. Um, it, we are in this trance-like state, and if we don't start paying attention to it. Um, the left hemisphere and this trance state are going to grow to just high levels of division and potentially even organizational collapse. So, you know, what does that mean? Well, the antibody to that are the, are the right hemisphere folks, the folks that are really focused on relationships, that are focused on their connections to the natural world, the storytellers. This is why we feel such relief when we see those leaders who do that. That because what they do is they address what Daniel Cole says is necessary for high performing cultures. That when you when you are connected to other humans, when you build social capital, when you tell stories, then you create psychological safety. You create a level of human connection and shared vision that a collective can form around and actually move toward greater things, move towards that upswing. So I believe the storytellers are going to own the room. The relationship and connection uh, advocates, they're the ones that are going to lead us to better days. And the ones that are focused on division and control and rigid ideology, they're going to fall prey to this shadow tribalism that's taken us over. Right? Um, so that's my predictions for August 2023. And I can tell you that at the Rooftop Podcast, what we're going to do is we're going to keep pivoting into um, a focus on human connection and operationalizing this upswing because I am optimistic. I am um, 
I am of the belief that there are really good things happening in this country and in the world where a lot of leaders are seeing this. They realize that institutional leaders are, are divisionist in nature. They're not coming. Nobody's coming. And we have to lead ourselves in these situations. We have to lead our families, our communities. And I don't mean this in, a, in, in, in any way other than just responsible leadership, just, you know, whether it's voting bad leaders out of office or civic responsibility or forming uh, networks and groups that can address problem areas and, and issues that the government just simply is not addressing, um, whether that's poverty, whether that is uh, social injustice, whether that is um, veterans' moral injury. You know, there's there's a lot of opportunity here for leaders just like you to step into the breach and say, okay, nobody's coming. I'll I'll, I'll put something together and I'll lead this, and then we demonstrate to these institutional leaders what it looks like. And we we shame them into doing the right thing, or we vote them out of office, you know. And and I just think I, I feel good about uh, this approach, and I and I certainly believe that there is a lot of energy uh, evolving and emerging from this. And so, for my for my part, I'm going to try to bring as much insight and perspective around the shadow side of it, talking about the churn, you know, the distraction, disengagement, and distrust that's happening that's novel and new so that we have a better understanding of it. I'm going to talk about the human operating system and this left hemisphere, right hemisphere thing uh, with McGilchrist and and others from the um, – the Human Givens Institute. I'm going to talk more about the trance state that a lot of us are falling prey to, where we're being mobilized into really just fear-based behavior, uh, where in-groups and out-groups are, are are emerging instead of a bridging trust environment, where we get we set our our in-groups and our out-groups and our personal agendas aside, and we we look out for each other. And uh, I believe all of those things are possible. But also, I'm going to I'm going to focus on the human connection skill sets of of, um, of of everything from negotiations to storytelling to active listening to nonverbal skill sets, how we prepare for engagements, and 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 what reciprocity and and relationships and social capital can look like. If we start to train ourselves, if we start to think along these lines, we can lead responsibly. And I've seen this happen over and over again in microcosms, and I think we can expand that. So I'm excited about it. I appreciate all the support. I, this podcast continues to grow. We go really deep on things, but I'm, I'm encouraged by the, the level of personal responsibility that people are bringing to this podcast, regardless of background and regardless of political affiliation. I, I see a real opportunity here for us to focus, frankly, less on the rigid ideological issues and more on how we treat each other when we discuss those issues, because that's what our kids deserve. I'm excited to be with you on this journey as we move beyond this painful month of August and into the realm of human connection and operationalizing Putnam's upswing. So thanks for what you do, and I'll see you on the rooftop. 